Today's uh, Palm Sunday. We enter into what Christians call Holy Week. Uh, certainly one of the most important weeks of the year. So we're going to actually start off today playing a little game. It's not much of a game, really. Um, more of an exercise. It's called Powerful or Not So Powerful. We're going to discuss two different ways that you can enter a city. And then we're going to finish with what, I guess what I'm going to call Jesus' not-so-triumphal entry. So here we go. Let's pray. Send your spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word, move in our hearts to accept what we hear, purify our will to obey, enjoy, and in faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. It's pretty easy. This one's pretty easy. Powerful or not so powerful? Powerful. Yeah, see, like I said, it's pretty easy. It's important, though. Powerful and not so powerful. <laughs> All right. How about that one? Powerful. All right. <laughs> I wish I could get it to keep going. That was the best I could do. All right. Powerful and not so powerful. All right. How about that one? Powerful. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I, I was just trying to have a little bit of fun with this. Uh, you see maybe where we're going. Every year, I was taking a look at this a little bit closer every year, uh, Forbes puts out a list of the world's most powerful people, right? So I checked who's currently, who's currently on the list. So currently number one most powerful person uh, at number one is Vladimir Putin, right? Donald Trump is at two. It's the first time actually in history, I think, in a long, long time that uh, if that hasn't been flipped. Uh, so this is a little unique. Pope Francis is at 5, Mark Zuckerberg at 10, Elon Musk at 21. Um, just some interesting things to think about, who are, who's the movers and shakers are, who holds the power. Um, and so what I was really interested in is what about the, the least powerful people in the world? Like, can you, can you find out who they are? Um, the answer is, yeah, a bunch of us raise our hands. Um, actually, you can, you can find this. So I tried it. It was a little bit more challenging. Uh, but this is, this is funny. Number one on the list, I'm actually not kidding, right? I, this is real. You can look it up yourself. Uh, number one on the list of the world's least powerful people is if you even remember him. He was so short-lived in American history. Anthony Scaramucci, remember him? Okay. All one and a half weeks of him. So he was hired as the White House Director of Communications. Less than two weeks on the job, he was fired. That guy's listed, seriously, as the number one least powerful person in the world. I just thought that was kind of funny. Um, and so maybe we, had, we see where we're going with this. We're going to talk a little bit about power and what Jesus is, you know, they call this, uh, this entry into Jerusalem, Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And my question for us today is going to be something maybe a little bit different. Like, my question is, how triumphal was it really? How triumphal was it really? And so if you read Matthew and Luke's account of this day, it would certainly be a little bit more triumphal than, than Mark's. But what about Mark's gospel, what we're going to look at today? What is... Mark's unique contribution to this day that begins the final and the most important week in Jesus' life. And what does it say about power, right? That's what we're going to look at. So uh, Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 11. We find ourselves at the gates of Jerusalem. After we read this, talk about it a little bit, you're going to get to decide for yourself, powerful or not so powerful. We'll see where you get. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, 
You will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away. They found a colt tied near a door outside the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Shocker, huh? (laughs) They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. And so it's Passover time. Between, you know, these numbers are crazy, but the numbers are somewhere between 300,000 and a million Jews would have made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem at that time. Uh, Coming from all over the world to remember and to celebrate this time that God had delivered them from the hands of the Pharaoh um, and this oppressive imperial power of Egypt. So they journeyed to Jerusalem. They were very aware of the fact that they still found themselves suffering at the hands of a different imperial power in Rome. And so Passover in Jerusalem was always this really volatile and problematic time for the Romans because religious fervor was in the air. There was resentment against Rome. It ran high during all these national uh, Jewish uh, holidays and religious holidays. And so I was looking at this and I was thinking, there are two really distinct and different ways that you can enter a city. You can enter the city the Roman way, or you can enter the city the way of Jesus. So this is what we're going to do for a few minutes. First, the Roman way. Pontius Pilate was appointed by Tiberius Caesar, who succeeded Caesar Augustus. His job was a, was a pretty simple one, really. It was to keep revolution from breaking out. And so he actually left his palace headquarters in another city, Caesarea Philippi, and he took his army and he marched them all the way to Jerusalem, entering through the west gate of Jerusalem. This massive show of force was actually only meant to deter the Jews from any thoughts of rebellion. This is taking place at the same time as Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem. And so at the front of this huge army, there would have been what's called this Aquilifer guy who carried all the Roman standards, the little banners, right? Um, and on the banner, you would have seen the Roman imperial eagle. It was the symbol of Roman speed and power, and it was the thing that struck fear into people when anyone saw it. If you were playing the powerful or not-so-powerful game at this point, Pilate's uh, army was very, very powerful. Imagine Pilate entering the city of Jerusalem, maybe even on the very day that Jesus did. We're not quite certain which day he got there. Uh, Maybe you would have seen in front of this column of cavalry and foot soldiers, you would have seen armor and helmets and swords and flags of the Caesars, banners listing all the battles that they had won. You would have heard the sound of marching feet, of clinking swords, the beating of drums, all of this to show this brute force to display this raw power that his army, that the Roman army, had. And when Pilate entered the city, what he was saying and communicating is, if you mess with me, if you resist in any way, 
you're going to feel the full weight of Rome come down on you. And when the full power of Rome came down on anyone, there was rarely ever anything left behind. And so that's how Pilate enters the city of Jerusalem. Jesus shows us a very, very different way to enter a city. He too had been journeying toward Jerusalem with his kind of ragtag posse of disciples. The difference is no pomp, no army, no boots, no swords, no drums, no banners listing the battles won, no war standards with imperial eagles. In contrast to Pilate, Jesus approaches from the east gate, Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives is what the scripture says. And so the Mount of Olives is actually like about 2,600 feet above sea level. It sits about 300 feet above Jerusalem. And so the road from Jericho, which you have to travel up to get to the Mount of Olives, is uh, actually the lowest point, uh, lowest city on earth, 800 feet below sea level. And you make this climb about 12 miles and 3,000 feet, kind of like Whitney we were talking about earlier. It's a pretty, pretty good climb, not quite Whitney, but it's pretty, pretty good. Um, and so what people say, people like to trace Jesus' footsteps today, and they like to do this walk following in his steps. And when they get to the top, everyone says the same thing. They're, just, they're absolutely believed when they get to the top. It's a long climb. And so the Mount of Olives, even before King David's time, this had always been a really important place of worship. And according to the ancient rabbis, it was even associated with the coming of the Messiah. So we have Mark deliberately making this connection between uh, Jesus and Messiahship, between Jesus and kingship. Mark is just making that connection absolutely clear by the use of Jesus' entry where he entered into the city. So from the summit of the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends these two nameless guys, we don't know who they are, uh, disciples to go into the neighboring villages to get a donkey for him to borrow. And here, I, this is just it's one of my favorite lines in all the scripture, right? This is one of the most underrated lines ever. The Lord needs it, right? <laughs> Jesus is actually worried. Just think about this. Like, he's actually concerned. He thinks this through and he's like, you know what? If I send two disciples out to borrow somebody's donkey, they're going to think I'm trying to steal it. Um, he's thinking about this. You know, I, I think this is great. Um, and he's, he's right. It's exactly what happens. These guys are like, what are you doing untying my donkey? And they just say exactly what they were told to say. They say the Lord needs it, right? And the guys respond, all right, man, no problem. That clears it all up. Just make sure Jesus has them back by six. It's like, so... I love that line, the Lord needs it. I've tried it so many times. Like, I'll give you an example. Back in my youth ministry days, when somebody had a slice of pizza and I wanted it, right, I would just say, hey, the Lord needs it. <laughs> How many times it worked for me? Zero. So if we're playing the Rob is powerful or not so powerful game, all right, don't answer, it's rhetorical, uh, you get the point, Right. And so Mark, he wants to make sure of, this is real, I think this is really important to me, he wants to make sure that we understand two truths about Jesus. This is what, this is what he, we must understand, that Jesus is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, right? But Jesus is not the kind of king that was expected. He's not the kind of Messiah that people were expecting. This is what Mark really wants us to understand. And so Jesus, I think, was really intent on making absolutely certain that the people then and us today, that we're given the opportunity to really see him for who he really is. And doesn't this make sense? Don't we all want people to know and see us for who we really are? Uh, this was really important to Jesus. Nobody likes being misunderstood. 
And so Jesus, to do this, he actually enacts a living parable right in front of the people of Jerusalem, right in front of their eyes. He's trying to help them better understand exactly what kind of king it was that had arrived. And so he did this by choosing a donkey to ride in on. It's very deliberate. So commandeering a beast of burden was actually the prerogative of a king in ancient times. But what's interesting is that unlike Matthew and John, if you read this account um, in the different gospels, the prophet, the words of the prophet Zechariah, they're not actually spoken in Mark. Mark seems to prefer kind of these more subtle messianic symbols to bold proclamation. I think that's important in this text. And so a donkey is certainly not one of uh, the most admired animals in God's creation. Uh, they're of a reputation for being slow and stinky and cumbersome, insignificant, and what do we associate them with? Being stubborn, right? Um, my guess is that donkeys don't feel very special. If any creature has the right to feel bad about itself, it's probably the donkey. The only thing they appear to be good for is carrying things. The truth is, I honestly believe that this idea of carrying things it actually means something here. The donkey is carrying the Messiah, the king. The Messiah king is carrying the burdens or sins of the world, right? And so we have this clue right here just in this animal. And so when you know the prophetic Old, uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible uh, text, then you understand that the donkey is also good for this one massive, monumentally important thing that the donkey was said to be the animal of choice for the coming Messiah. And so Jesus takes this donkey, he's enact, enacting this living parable right in front of people. It's this really, it's a stroke of genius. The donkey is the perfect symbol for helping people to understand that Jesus' concept of Messiah is, is a lowly one. It's a different, it's a different one. And I absolutely love this quote from Martin Luther. I'm actually going to put it up afterwards and you'll see it. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal. He comes not with fear and pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and take them upon himself. That's a guy who gets this text. The people of Jerusalem, they line the roads, they line the streets to welcome him, waving palm branches. So they welcomed him as the long-awaited Messiah, shouting Hosanna, which means like save now. It's this kind of shouted prayer is what it is. For God to kind of don't hold anything back, God, pull out all the stops. Save us from this Roman oppression. Save us from this Pilate and his army that's already this unwelcome presence in their city. And so the donkey represents Jesus' understanding of Messiahship. It's the palm branch that the people chose for Jesus' entry. Now this is really important. Something I learned a few years ago. Uh, growing up, you just we wave the palm branches and it's fun, but you want to know where it comes from. Here's where it comes from. Um, about 165 years earlier, this guy that has a good name, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, stepped up his campaign, was trying to actually eliminate Judaism off the face of the earth. He marches into Jerusalem, he plunders the temple, abolishes the Torah as the Jewish law, establishes this new uh, order of worship, this cult of Baal. 
Judas Maccabees, his nickname's the greatest nickname, the Hammer, right? This guy's like, should have been a WWE wrestler, you know? He leads a revolt against this army with farmers with spears, all right? He wins. <laughs> he drives these guys out. Three years later, these Maccabean rebels reclaim the temple. They dismantle uh, the defiled altar and get rid of it, and they reestablish proper temple worship. And guess what the branch of choice used in their victory celebration was? The palm, all right? Palms were used at the temple rededication. These Maccabean rebels, they minted coins with palm branches on them. And so this is really important to our story. The act of celebrating with palms was not this neutral act. It was a very politically charged environment because the palms symbolized something. It symbolized Israel's national hopes. The people took these national hopes that they had for Jesus. They projected all of these things onto Jesus as he rides into the city on this donkey. And so here's what's going on, right? The crowds, they think they, they're welcoming. They think they're welcoming another Judas Maccabees. They think they're welcoming like another hammer. This is what they're looking for, another liberator. And you can imagine, being Jesus, how misunderstood you would feel as all of this is going on around you. And so they expected this powerful warrior king. Instead, they get this peaceful and humble king. When they wanted a hammer, they got a donkey. When they wanted powerful, they got this seemingly not so powerful. Maybe the crowds that line the streets of Jerusalem envision Jesus quickly putting together this army to challenge Pilate's army and try to get Pilate and his army the heck out their city, right? That's what these people are thinking. They're projecting all of these hopes onto Jesus. But the thing that they didn't understand was that Jesus' power sits under the authority of love. This is really important stuff. Somehow Jesus' entry into Jerusalem that day shows that his use of power, his understanding of power would be really, really different. And here's some fascinating stuff, I think. Matthew's account says, the whole city stirred and asked, who is this? Luke's account says that the city was so electric that even the stones were ready to cry out. Mark's account is like a wet blanket thrown on the party. It's known for what does not happen. The whole scene in Mark actually comes to nothing. Jesus enters Jerusalem, and where, what happens to the crowds? Where were they at the end? They just absolutely vanish. They disappear. They're not even in the story. Where did they all go? Why don't they follow Jesus all the way to the temple? Like, where is the stirring of people's hearts in Matthew? Where are the stones crying out from Luke? Like, it reminds me of the parable of the sower, the seed, remember, that was scattered um, and accepted with joy, but then it developed no roots and it died quickly. And so what made me think about it is what Mark seems to be warning is this. Mark seems to be saying that enthusiasm is not the same thing as faith. This is really important in the story. We're careful not to confuse enthusiasm for discipleship. There is a big difference. And so the ending of this story just blows my mind. To be honest, I'm a little almost troubled by it because... It makes me ask myself some really tough questions. It kind of implicates me, like scripture often does. It made me ask some difficult questions, like, am I enthusiastic about Jesus or faithful? That's an important question, you know? 
would I, if I was in that crowd, would I have disappeared? Where would I have been, you know? Would I have fallen him all the way to the temple? Or would I have just vanished like everybody else, you know? And so here's the end. Jesus enters the temple completely alone. The crowds are gone. He doesn't flex his royal muscles. He doesn't flex his kingly Messiah muscles. He doesn't do that. He doesn't pray lightning bolts down to rain down on his enemies. Like, this is not what we see. Jesus acts, this is the first time I've thought about this, but Jesus seems to act more like a tourist in the temple. He surveys the scene in solitude. He checks it out. And then the scripture says he quietly returned to Bethany with his disciples. This is how this text ends. His journey is coming to an end. He's arrived at Jerusalem, the ultimate destination for the last time. He sees the cross rapidly approaching, as do we today. And Jesus knows that he's come to this city for one reason only. He's come to the city to die. And so let's play this game one final time. Here it is. Really interesting painting that I found. It's really unique. (laughs) Powerful or not so powerful. When I was kind of reflecting on it, I think maybe it's an image of power redefined or like maybe flipped and turned upside down. Um, Bottom up power, not so top down. And so I thought we were reminded that God's ways are definitely not our ways. Um, and God's ways are so surprising. They're what we least often expect. Like last night, I was pretty encouraged by anybody watching the students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, uh, some of the stuff that they were doing in Washington. If you listen to some of those speeches, uh, some of those speeches actually reminded me of, of um, the scripture today. They remind us that power is to be used on behalf of others. And I think that's maybe the big difference that we see Uh, the Roman way and Jesus' way. And those students last night that we were listening to on TV, they they reminded me of what I see in the scriptures, that peace is more powerful than violence, that love is more powerful than hate. And so we're reminded also there's two ways. We see them played out this Palm Sunday. There's uh, two ways to enter a city. There's Rome's way, which really just represents the way of the world. It's not just picking on them. And then we also see that in the way of Jesus. So there are two ways to understand and live out of power. The choice is ours. We get to choose whom we will follow and how we will make our way in the world. The way of Jesus will certainly cut against the grain. It will not always be the popular way. People will say, your way is impractical. It doesn't get stuff done, right? It's not always going to be the popular way. But there are some good examples in history if we think about this. For that's not actually very true. Martin Luther King Jr. would be one that comes to mind. Gandhi might be enough. But these aren't always going to be popular ways. The way that our Lord has showed us and lived out before us is the way of love. And that's what Jesus says, follow, follow me. So what made me wonder when I was thinking about Palm Sunday, I wonder if Jesus is looking for faith, not just short-lived enthusiasm. Maybe Jesus is looking for followers, not just branch waivers. Maybe Jesus is looking for people who will use their power, their authority, their resources to serve and love the world, not just people willing to shout loud hosannas. With me? Maybe most of all, Jesus wants us to stick with it, to stick by his way, to not disappear when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. 
That's what this story says to me. And so may we follow in his ways. Let's pray. God, we too certainly come to you with our own expectations of who we want you to be. God, we often show enthusiasm and then quickly disappear. God, may your word take root in our lives. May you grant us real faith, the kind of faith that we need to stick with you when things get tough. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.